Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and we have my co-host and mother who just celebrated her 87th birthday yesterday as we are recording this. And (laughs) Caroline, how are you today? Oh, pretty good. Another beautiful day. So that's nice. Always, Always encouraging when it's a beautiful day. Yes, especially starting out your 88th year on the on the planet. That's <laughs> Did you think you'd make it this long? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I you know. And in such great I, shape. <laughs> I do. I do know this. The, the older we get, the faster it goes. Yeah, for sure. Well, this, this is. Last- we have a very appropriate book for this today, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. We really do. The book is The 80-Year-Old Sorority Girls, and the author is Robin Benoit. And um, she is a sorority alumna, and she would love for you to guess which sisterhood she belongs to after reading this book. This this is a very interesting, very interesting book. Um, Robin graduated from college in 1985 with a degree in journalism, excuse me, public relations, she believes it was her sorority experience which led her to, to a career in public relations-community relations with nonprofit agencies and corporations because she wanted her work to be meaningful and helpful to others. That desire to make a difference led her to become a writer. Um, she lives in the Midwest with her husband, Brian, and they have two daughters, two adult dollars, and Annalise and Jillian. She loves to travel and credits her 1984 experience on Semester at Sea for creating the adventure in her, the venturer in her. She is uh, actually the author of two previous books, and we welcome her to this uh, interview. I'm, I, I want to say at the outset that the graph you made at the beginning of the book to outline who the characters were and their relationship to each other was very helpful. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, welcome thank to Writer's you. Voices, Robin. Oh, thank you. And Caroline, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about, um, before we really get into the 80-year-old sorority girls, about your journey as a writer. So you started out as a journalist and in public relations and then what happened well the the change to being a writer was really brought about by my daughter's struggle with vision problems when she was about five years old we discovered that she could not see out of one of her eyes and you would think that this would be something that would be very obvious but it was not and I went searching for information to help us to understand what amblyopia is, that's her condition, and what treatment might be available to her. And I couldn't find a lot to read about the subject of vision therapy, but I kept finding little hints about it. And so after my daughter did vision therapy and it successfully helped her um, with her vision problems, I realized people need to know about this. And mm-hmm. so I sat down thinking I might do a blog about it. And the more I wrote and the more I wrote, I realized I have a book. And so I wrote <laughs> two books on the subject of vision therapy, Jillian's story, how vision therapy changed my daughter's life. 
And then the follow-up book is Dear Jillian, Vision Therapy Changed My Life Too. And it talks about people who also found success through that. So it was because of something going on personally in my life that I thought might help somebody else that led me to be a writer. And the same thing kind of happened with this book too. And that is because of your mother, right? Yes, because of my mother. She had Alzheimer's and passed away in 2017 uh, at the age of 85. And just seeing that disease steal her mind was so heartbreaking for me and hard for mm-hmm. me to live with. And uh, when I, I don't know, about a few years went by and I <clears throat> thought, I really want to honor my mother and be some kind of an advocate for Alzheimer's research to share with others what my family went through in hopes that it helps them. So there's a lot to talk about here. First, so let's let's circle back to the vision therapy a little bit. What exactly is vision therapy? Vision therapy is offered through um, optometry offices, through an optometrist. It's a supervised program using a variety of uh, computerized games and other equipment that help you with your eye and brain connection. And so in my daughter's case, she was not using one of her eyes, but it was really her brain trying to shut that eye off because it had double vision and other problems that we weren't aware of. And so it's really an amazing treatment for a lot of vision problems, like my daughter, for stroke victims, for traumatic brain injury. Uh, It's really quite phenomenal, and I'm super proud to be an advocate for it. Why is it better known? That's a really good question. I think it's because optometrists don't toot their own horn very loudly. I think it sounds self-serving to say, hey, I have this um, opportunity for you to improve your vision. It makes it sound, I think, coming from them that they're just trying to drum up business. And I don't think that there's a lot of patients that think to go to Uh, the internet or out into the world and say, this is an amazing thing. And so there's not a lot out there about it, but it is quite effective. Does does it help improve just people with kind of more normal or more common vision problems too? Like Um, nearsightedness or things like that, or is it really just for more severe issues? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I'm guessing here that It would not be just for nearsightedness or farsightedness, but say someone has what they refer to as like a convergence insufficiency, which is the inability to maintain your inward eye aim. And some children struggle with that and they start having double vision or they have headaches or whatever, but they pass a vision screening um, because they're not screening them to see specific problems like that. So I would say anyone that's struggling with vision should ask their optometrist about vision therapy. Wow. Wow. You know, there was a company here in Fairfield years ago that was selling these, these eye exercises sort of, it was, um, it almost seemed a little like over the top, but maybe it was real. 
you know, they were promising that you could really improve your vision with these exercise, these eye exercises. It could have been. It yeah. could have been. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so these books, of course, were nonfiction books, and and the one that we're talking about today, eighty-year-old sorority girls, is is fiction. What made you decide to to? I mean, and you could have written a nonfiction, a memoir type book about caring for your mother with Alzheimer's. What made you decide to go this route instead? I have always wanted to try to write um, in in this manner, to write in fiction. And yet I, you know, for years and years just felt intimidated by dialogue and trying to really develop a character. And because mm-hmm. I'm a trained journalism major and that's the field of writing that I went into, I learned how to research something and then write about it. And this is very different, and I wanted to take on the challenge, and I'm so glad I did because now I don't know if I'm ever going to stop. I just, <laughs> I, I just really, really loved it. Well, the result was very good, I will say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. How long did you work on this book? I kept notes on this book for quite some time, and I was working for a marketing company out of Los Angeles just from home and working on website content for a lot of optometrists and other medical professionals around the country. And just as COVID hit, as you can imagine, lots of doctors' offices closed. They didn't need marketing. They canceled contracts. I was um, let go. I received a work stoppage request. And I thought, well, okay, what am I going to do? We are all in pandemic mode. We're living mostly at home. I think I'm going to pull out those notes. And that was November of 2021. And by May 3rd of 2021, let me think. No, I'm telling you this wrong. November 2020. I was going to say, if you started working on this in November 2021 and we are holding the finished book in our hand, you are a miracle worker. I'm a miracle worker. 2020, November 2020 till May 3rd, 2021, I sent a um, proposal to review to my original publisher. um, And she, about three or four weeks later, said, I believe we have a betting fiction writer on our hands. And I produced the final manuscript about um, four months later, five months later. Oh my gosh! It just seemed to—I know—it just seemed to pour out of me. Um, now, when I submitted her the proposal, I had the majority of it done, mm. um, but I took a few months to really go back and make sure that I was telling the story the best that I could. The hardest aspect of this for me was the main character, Vivian. Vivian is the one that has Alzheimer's. And I really needed the reader to understand that Vivian was disappearing from her friends' lives and disappearing from the world as Alzheimer's took her mind. And um, I wanted her to slowly disappear through the story, just like she's disappearing in real life. And for the reader to feel like, where is Vivian? Where did Vivian go? I wanted them to feel that as much as the characters, her friends did. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the use use of flashbacks in the in the story, you know, uh, um, was was really good because all these characters had relationship with her, and this came out with the you know with with the past the past things that happened to to them, and that that really in it enhanced the whole thing. I thought. Well, thank you for saying that because I wasn't sure. Um, it seemed important to me to show their relationship. They'd been friends for over 60 years. They'd known each other since they were 18. They'd gone through a lot of life together. Yeah. And I really wanted to go back and show where that relationship started and some of the things that they had gone through. And I love the flashbacks, and I'm glad that I went that way with it, but I wasn't sure at first how that was going to work out. Well, it can be challenging. Um yeah. Particularly when you've got, you know, in, in a way, this your book was structurally very complex because you have multiple point of points of view, um, multiple characters that you're <laughs> that you're really delving into, and multiple timelines. And that's, that's not easy to pull off. <laughs> Well, and I hope that I did pull it off. I worked very hard to try to make it seamless, but you are correct. That is all there. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing that helped um, was that you did, um, you know, there's, there's a a lot of through line. There's not, it's not one of these books where you're jumping around from one character to another and they don't meet until midway through, you know, that can be, um, even more confusing, but um, mm-hmm. so you, you had you had the through line of the relationship between all of the characters, and so we always knew who they all were, and that that really helps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. And I tried to make it as cinematic as I could in that you visualize um, at the point where Vivian is going to have a flashback why she's having that flashback. Maybe it's just a few words Mm -hmm. that make her think about something or an experience that's brought to her mind. And the flashbacks begin to fade because Vivian isn't talking anymore or very little, and they don't know what she's thinking, and we don't see into her mind as much toward the end, just like with my mother. Now, was your mother a sorority girl too? She was not. She was not. I was the first one to do that, to pledge a sorority, and I chose to do that because my high school friends were doing it and recommended it would be a great way to make friends. And I thought going to a large college campus, it would be nice to have some friends. And so I pledged, and of all of us, I was probably the least knowledgeable and maybe even the least excited to do it, (laughs) and I am the one who has stayed the most involved. (laughs) (laughs) how like I don't know much about sororities um really I know they usually start on college campuses but what is the you know other than maintaining your friendships through are there like events and so forth that are where the whole sorority continues to in other words how do you stay active in it after college That's a great question. One of the things that I, there are several things I've done. I think I started really by being a chapter advisor, and that is an alum who um, 
offers her time to help the sorority officers navigate their positions and their roles in the sorority and to be an advisor of sorts to all of the young women, making sure that they are behaving as they should, that they understand the rules and being there for them as an encourager and a helper. And I did that. And then I became an area officer to help other uh, chapter advisors um, in, in in learning their role. And also there are alumni chapters in most cities around the country, sororities have these, where you can see friends at a social event, you can gather together to do a philanthropy project, support charity. And um, so we support the local college chapters as well as do things in our community. And uh, on the 6th of July, I'm going to my sorority's national convention. And I'm very excited about that. So it's there's 5.5 million initiated sorority women in the United States. It's a huge group of people, of women. And I love that support network. And I love that business networking opportunity and just the friendships and the relationships that come out of it. Mm-hmm. So what kind of response has this book received from your sorority sisters? Well, I, I'm getting a lot of feedback that they love it. Um, I've had some really funny phone calls saying, am I Helen? Am I the really spicy, <laughs> snarky one? And did you pick me for that? You know, and uh, then there's another character named Ida, and she is an 80-year-old manic football fan. And she is just hilarious in the story. And I've had many of my sorority sisters say, I'm Ida. That's me. (laughs) You picked me for Ida. And truthfully, the only character that is really after anybody specifically, you know, based on anyone, is Vivian herself. And Uh Vivian, the real Vivian, was a sorority alum that I knew back when she was probably in her late 80s, early 90s, and I was in my late 30s, early 40s, and I adored Vivian. And I loved hearing her stories about getting in trouble for playing her Victrola too loudly or <laughs> how she had huge crushes on movie stars. And and I just, I loved hearing all of her little stories. And there's um, one specific story, I'm not going to throw out a spoiler, um, that's completely true. Um, about Vivian, and I was so excited to put it in the book. Oh, now I'm guessing the real Vivian's not with us anymore, but how about her family? Are you in touch with them? Do they know about this? You know, I have not reached out, and we did not stay in touch. My husband and I moved from that city where we were living back to the Midwest. We were living in Florida, and we moved back to the Midwest, and I was not able to stay in touch but thank you for mentioning that i need to reach out oh so and this book 80 year old sorority girls is set in florida correct yes correct and why did you why did you decide to set it there i set it there because that's where vivian was and Mm. in real life vivian went to the florida state college for women which became florida state university and but I didn't want to say Florida State in the book, so I created um, an imaginary college where they went called Reading College, 
And I also never name a sorority specifically in the book. I don't tell anyone mine. And it's, it's not because I'm not proud. I'm exceptionally proud. Uh, I just wanted all sorority women to feel like this book belonged to them. And I felt if I named mine, it wouldn't feel that way. And mm-hmm. so I kept an imaginary. My publisher said, why don't you make up a sorority? And I felt that that didn't work for this because it's not a farce. It's a serious story. It's got funny moments for sure. Um, but I just didn't feel like that fit in it. So I worked it around to not ever name one mm-hmm. specifically, but, but I did give a shout out to Florida in general, cause that's where Vivian went. And of course you have your, your um, version of Disney yes. in the book. <laughs> the original manuscript said Disney. And um, my publisher said, many of these things are trademarked and you need to take that out. And I had to go back to the drawing board and create my own amusement park and my own everything in that respect. I couldn't say Tupperware. I had to just say plasticware. And I, that was something I really learned um, through this process is that you can't use all those trademark names. I would be mm-hmm. surprised, though, if you were actually describing a real place that you couldn't use the name I of think that it's place. Because I, well, I think it's because I got so specific about uh, different rides and different aspects and different foods that you can buy there. And I think they just felt more comfortable not having a Disney representative trying to get them on the phone. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I took that out. Now, I do, we do mention a few things here and there that um, we <laughs> felt were general enough, but we thought that might be a little bit too specific. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, Robin, why don't you read a little bit from 80-year-old sorority girls? Okay, I'd be delighted to. I'm going to start um, a little ways into the first chapter. The first chapter is where we meet Vivian and we learn that she's living in an assisted living center and her closest sorority sisters, Lainey, who is her big sister, Helen and Ida have come to have Monday lunch with her, which they do every week. And I'm going to kick off on page nine. Nurse Angela took Vivian beyond the giant wishing doors pushing her into the dining room where three lovely older women sat in their usual spot at the table by the window. She adjusted the brakes on Vivian's wheelchair and left with a smile and slight wave to the ladies. I traveled to China even before President Richard Nixon, Vivian stated emphatically, in lieu of greeting her longtime friends, whom she insisted were her sisters. They were sorority sisters she had known for more than 60 years, which made her statement true but most thought this was just one of the many things she had confused in her mind. My husband, John, was a congressman. I think he secretly worked for the CIA, she shared in a whisper with her sisters as they sipped coffee out of white foam cups. Or you worked for the CIA, Button. Lainey, the oldest of the sisters, by a few months laughed. Button, as in cute as a button, was a nickname from childhood, Much to Vivian's dismay, it was a name that followed her through life. She tried repeatedly, especially upon marrying Mr. John Upton, to be known as Vivian, but the name Button Upton was just too funny for her friends to let slide. 
Well, anyway, I guarantee whatever Chinese food they presume to be preparing for lunch in that kitchen isn't, Vivian asserted. Her friend Lainey asked, isn't what? Edible? Chinese food, Vivian answered. With a chuckle, Lainey reached over to squeeze Vivian's hand. They say we elderly lose our taste buds, said Helen, who no doubt knew because Helen read everything and knew everything. She'd been a walking encyclopedia since long before high school. She turned to say thank you to the staff member who brought their lunch to the table. Helen pushed her glasses up on her nose and studied the plate in front of her. Her red hair, once her pride and joy, was now gray, short, and a little too curly for her liking. She had gorgeous brown eyes that seemed to twinkle when she smiled. We are born with as many as 80,000 taste buds, but those start diminishing around age 65, Helen shared. I don't really think that's true, Ida, the eternal optimist, muttered. She remained the envy of her friends with her splendor and dress-to-perfection style. She wore her gray hair, once curly blonde, and a classy bun, and today looked particularly spiffy with a bright red beret. Her ensemble was perfected with a light touch of red lipstick. Looking from Helen to Lainey, she spoke a little louder. They just say that so we won't blame the cook. Lainey, Helen, and Ida looked at each other and laughed as they simultaneously, and a little too loudly, said the name of the man they'd never forget. Virgil! How that man ever managed to get hired as a cook for a sorority house is beyond me, said Helen. Ida paused with her food on her fork. He really was a nice man, despite all the scary tattoos. I think he was in the Navy. Do you remember the chicken Kiev with the orange rice? It was basic white rice with something like orange juice mixed in it. He called it a la orange with a French accent. The man was from Albuquerque, Lainey quipped, barely looking up from her lunch. Well... Despite the orange rice incident, he did make amazing pies, Ida said, looking at the dessert next to her plate. She reached over with her fork and took a small taste. Actually, this is an excellent apple pie. You don't suppose, she asked jokingly with a dramatic flair. They all turned and looked toward the kitchen, seeing several young women in hairnets. They looked back at each other, laughing at their inside jokes. We do have. The most heavenly cakes and pies, Vivian whispered. Flashback. <clears throat> Vivian, would you like a pedophore with your tea? Our cook makes the most heavenly cakes and pies. As Vivian nodded and smiled, the lovely young girl with long dark hair and striking green eyes continued. I'm so glad we have iced tea. It's August in Florida after all, she said with a giggle. Well aware of the stifling heat and the crowded but large, beautiful sorority house living room, Vivian turned her head slightly, discreetly wiping the perspiration off her top lip before removing her newly purchased black gloves. They were the perfect match to her sleeveless dress, black patent pumps, and hat. She turned back to accept her plate and cup from the pretty sorority girl who did not look warm in the least in her sleeveless white eyelid dress. This was Vivian's last of several sorority houses to visit that day, so she did her best to casually glance at her name tag. Thank you, Lainey. 
They sat face to face in matching floral chairs surrounded by other girls longing to pledge a sorority and current members sharing their favorite aspects of sisterhood. Despite everyone's efforts to keep their voices conversationally low, it was a little loud nevertheless. Lainey scooted her chair slightly closer to Vivian and leaned toward her as she said, tell me about yourself, Vivian. What are your interests and goals in coming to Reading College? After talking about the areas of study open to young women at the college, teaching, nursing, or secretarial, Vivian was pleased to find she had much in common with her hostess. They were both from South Carolina, loved dogs and kids, and wanted to be nurses. She was fun to talk to and giggled at everything Vivian said. We've been talking so much, we almost forgot to eat, Vivian said. I've never forgotten to eat anything in my life, Lainey replied, especially desserts. They picked up their tiny cakes, and as they took a bite, they both briefly closed their eyes and made the same yummy sound. Mmm. Their eyes popped open, and they laughed at each other. As they walked toward the door at the end of the party, Lainey turned to Vivian and said with a contagious grin, I have truly loved meeting you today. Vivian replied, thank you, Lainey. Isn't it funny that we have so much in common? Very funny, Lainey replied with an extra big smile and giggle. Vivian was the last girl to leave the sorority party, lagging behind the others, returning to the dormitory. When she entered her room, she turned on the light and went straight to the mirror above the small dresser to remove her hat. She gasped in shock and embarrassment, closing her eyes and swaying a little as she tried to remember how many times she had wiped her upper lip throughout the day. She looked down at her black gloves with hatred, ripping them from her hands. Her roommate, Helen, came into the room, her eyes widening as she saw Vivian's face in the mirror. I look like Adolf Hitler, Vivian cried. <laughs> she motioned at her reflection in the mirror to the black glove stain above her lip and just below her nose that resembled a tiny black mustache. Now I'll never be asked to join a sorority. Of course you will. It's me who should be worried, her roommate replied. Nonsense, Helen. You're the brightest girl I've ever met. And that was Robin Benoit reading from the 80-year-old sorority girls. You know, I don't know when I have read a book where the main characters were 80-year-olds. I know. <laughs> I, I think... <laughs> That was one of the things that my publisher got super excited about. She said, um, you know, just a week before I had sent her the manuscript, she'd been on a conference call with a lot of other publishers, bemoaning the fact that there was not a lot of reading material material for older women and um, that they're often forgotten. And I said, well, I love them, and I've got a cute story about them. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just – are there any? <laughs> Can you even name one other book like this? Well, there was one person that said not too long ago that when she read my book, it was like the Golden Girls meets Steel Magnolias. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think maybe that kind of time frame. But, you know, we're talking years ago. There. Yeah. And that was TV, too. That w And movies. It wasn't. Uh, maybe there were books, but I don't remember there being books. Um, about right. the Golden Girls, but yeah, and, and that was so popular, 
you would think that somebody would have realized that there's a market out there. <laughs> that because well, with, I think there is a market out there. <laughs> yeah. Golden Girls is still on television quite a lot <laughs> on, on some channels, you know. That is true. That is true. And of course, Betty White. Um, you know, we just lost her this past year. She was a treasure. My goodness. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Loved her. Yeah. Um, I mean, older women read, obviously. And so, you know, not, not making you the spokesperson for all women over a certain age, Mom, but or Caroline, but um, do you like reading about your peers? Well, yes, I th- I found this book interesting. I it was hard to get into it first because of the, the multiple characters, but once I got into it and realized that and the flashbacks helped, it um, yeah, I do. I I well, I I enjoy reading I enjoy reading historical fiction, I almost anything. <laughs> right, right. I, I just like to read. Yeah. And you know, I think one of the ways that um the flashbacks really add to it, Robin, is that yeah, as you know, if I if I'm looking if I'm 80 years old and reading about an 80 year old, one of the, it's fun to think back on things that happened 60 years ago. In fact, mm-hmm. um, I read I read an article recently that talked about how as we age, that's sort of the job of our minds is to revisit the past. It isn't necessarily a you know, we think about people losing their current memory and, and living in the past as a negative thing, but it can actually be a positive thing. It's actually kind of your your job to synthesize your life and, and you know, to integrate all those experiences from, from all those years. And so I think this is, you know, this kind of fits fits with that. That's why I kept a diary. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the character Benton keeps the diary, too. <laughs> You're right. And do you keep a diary, Robin? I keep what I call more of a gratitude journal. I don't write into it every single day, but I write in it um, things that I'm exceptionally grateful about and kind of big events going on in my life and just to show that I am grateful and, and appreciative of my blessings. And so I do keep that. And, uh, but no, I don't write in a diary every single day, but um, I think it's amazing for people who do. Did you, did your mother have, did you have any writings from her that you used or even that you didn't use, but it's, you know, when you were writing this book? And not so much writings. My, I, um, went through lots of my mother's and my grandmother's cookbooks and I just mm. got so, and the character Lainey, who is Vivian's big sister is big into baking. And that kind of came a little bit from my mother and my grandmother. And I really loved going through all their cookbooks and just, you know, things like, you know, throw in a smidge of salt. I'm like, Okay, ladies, what is a smidge? <laughs> and, you know, those kinds of things. And um, so the cookbooks kind of led me to think about what the character Lainey could be known for. She's kind of known for baking when she's feeling upset and she wants to, 
that's kind of her love language is that she bakes and gives it to people, gives the cookies that she bakes to people. And I really kind of pulled that from a lot of my mother's cookbooks and things like that. My mother um, talked a lot in her Alzheimer's um, time as if she were young again. And I heard stories from her that I never had heard at all. And I'm assuming they're true. Um, you know, like one day I said, mother, you know, you left your pie sitting here. Do you want your pie? And she said, we don't have any sugar coupons or something along that line. And I'm like, what is she talking about? And my aunt told me, well, during the depression or during the war, there were limits on how much sugar you could buy and certain things like that from Mm -hmm. time to time. And Mm -hmm. you would get these coupons. And so, um, but she told lots of stories and really that's how I combined sorority with Alzheimer's into one story is because one particular day, my mother was very confused and she thought she was on a high school choir trip and she was talking about staying in a hotel and being with her girlfriend. And when I got home that night, from being with her, I told my husband about it. And I said to him, just in passing, if I ever have Alzheimer's, my mind is probably back in college in my sorority house. And that was where the light bulb went off. And I thought, I can do this. I can put a positive sorority story out into the world and fight those negative stereotypes of what sorority girls are. And I can honor my mother and try to be an advocate for Alzheimer's research. Oh, yep. cool. And you did. <laughs> that's what you did. <laughs> and that's what I did. Yeah. Um, so since you brought that up, some people do have this vision of sororities as just being very elitist and, and snobby. And obviously that was not your experience. From the inside, it anyway. Was, but <laughs> yeah, what? How do you what? How do you feel about that perspective? Right. <laughs> I the negative sorority stereotypes out there, and let me just say, they can get really ugly. I mean, yes, what you just said, kind of snobby, not true. I, I that was not my experience at all, and has not been my experience as an alum. Um, the stereotype of the blonde, airhead, unintelligent young woman, also not true. I have met and have advised so many brilliant minds and kind and caring minds out there. And so that's not true. And then there's a whole genre of books and even TV shows that are evil, like the Twisted Sisters and death on sorority row and um it's it's just you know we are not serial killers i mean to tell you we are we are good esteemable women who uh care about our our families and our friends and our neighborhoods and the women that i know that are sorority women are professionals uh lawyers doctors astronauts um all it's just it just makes me kind of, it used to make me laugh to see those stereotypes because I knew they were so untrue. And then it started making me cringe. And then it mm-hmm. made me realize that if we sorority women don't share our stories, how is anyone going to ever know that these stereotypes are not the truth 
and what the real picture of sisterhood is. Now, in in this book, the 80-year-old sorority girls, um, I mean, even somebody who's not a sorority woman or not really that interested in sororities could enjoy the story of female friendships. And also, right. you're dealing with various issues of aging, not just Alzheimer's. Um, so you've got a character who... Um, has lost her husband and, you know, trying to figure out whether to, you know, and living with her son, um, whether that's the right thing to do. You've got a character who is still driving, but, um, you know, so losing the independence of having your own car or, or being able to drive, um, medical issues, um, downsizing your home, moving into assisted living, <laughs> all of those. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> it's all there. And how did you, I mean, I feel like you're writing from personal experience, but obviously you're not that old. So how did you um, get inside the hearts and minds of people of that age who are ex who are having to make these decisions and experience these things? Well, I have been very fortunate to, because I've stayed involved with my sorority all these years, to know women older than me. And um, my mother, my aunts, my mother's friends, the women at church, I, I think I'm just one of these people that sits back in a room and just listens and watches and observes. And I've heard so many conversations about, you know, I, I, I want to go, but, you know, I can't drive anymore. My son took my car away and, and the son needed to take the car away. <laughs> we eventually had to take my mother's car from her. Um, but I just was, you know, lucky to be in the room where these conversations were happening and I never forgot them. And I just wanted to kind of share that. And, and something I discovered in writing fiction is that sometimes these characters take on a life of their own. And I would sit and write and look back at the end of the day and think, where did that come from? <laughs> what, what memory in my mind just sparked where Helen, the character went in the story today. And I think it's just experiences that I've had in the fortunate position to know many women older than myself. And, and I care so much about them and having known them when say I was 30 and they were 60 and now seeing them in their eighties or nineties, they still, they're still just as darling as they've ever been. And I feel like so many older people are left isolated and not pulled into activities, not pulled into intergenerational opportunities. And I want that to stop. I really want all of these older women to feel the love and to feel how much they are welcome. Mm. When you were um, writing this and you've got 
four main characters of, that are 80 year old plus another one who doesn't live near them and but does come to visit another one of their sorority sisters and then you also um get pretty into the lives of their granddaughters um become fairly important characters in the book as well so you're you have a lot like i mentioned quite a few point of view characters did you write like from the beginning of the book to the end skipping between characters or how did you when you were writing how did you do it in in chronologically i was kind of beginning to end um and Yet along the way, there were some detours. So let me give you an example. There's the character of Helen, and Helen is the smart one. Helen still drives her car. She's very feisty. Um, Helen is a, how do I want to put this, like a secret um, Hallmark Christmas movie fan. She makes everyone think that she has no heart, that she secretly is a sucker for a love story. (laughs) And it occurred to me as I'm going through Helen's life, Helen needs her own love story. I'm also a sucker for a love story. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. You also incorporate romance in here. It's possible for for older people to fall in love. (laughs) Absolutely. And so Helen needs somebody. And he came out of nowhere. I had no intention of including a character, and his name is Henry. And I had the funniest text from my big, my real big sister. And she's a single woman in her 60s. And she said, if Henry is based on a real man, I want to meet him. (laughs) And I laughed at that. But Henry really came out of nowhere just because the character of Helen, as I continued to write her, I realized Kira, that Helen needed her love story, and so that's where that came from. And so I did kind of go beginning to end, but there were times where I got to a point and thought, wait a minute, you know, I want to do this. And you mentioned granddaughters, and I felt like I wanted to show that multi-generational relationship and how special it is, so I did put them in. And my daughter, my uh daughter Jillian um pledged my sorority and graduated from college last year oh. in 2021 and I decided to put in the character Lottie her name is Charlotte but they call her Lottie and um many times I got on the phone with her and I said can I read you a couple of paragraphs and you tell me if this is good college age lingo <laughs> and she's like oh you need to throw in the word and you need to put in the word lit and that's just slapped and I'm like I have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) but okay if you think that's the way Lottie would talk then that's the way Lottie is going to talk and so I had some help there okay and um yeah and by creating these characters of Lottie and Jennifer who are the granddaughters I think I'm going to be able to go and write a sequel slash prequel um, based on them carrying the story on. Oh, oh, how lovely. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you would know when, like, did you know when you started sort of what the story arc was? 
Well, yes. I mean, I knew what was going to happen with Vivian. Because I really, that's my mom's experience and my mom's story. So I knew where the story was going to go. I knew that I wanted to have these sorority sisters rallying around her and helping her um, navigate that. And, but those stories um, kind of grew as I went. Um, But when I reached the end, I wrote a different epilogue originally, and I had wrapped it all up with a pretty little pink bow on it. The story was done. And my publisher rejected it and said, absolutely not. You don't want to wrap it up. You want to leave it open. And she said, you need to rethink this. And it took me a while to kind of figure out, like, well, if this isn't going to be the end, then where does the story go? And the story told me where it wanted to go. I know that sounds crazy, but once I kind of got to the end, I realized what I wanted to do. And I love the second epilogue that I wrote. And I really love where it landed because it does lead the reader to think there could be more. And there's a special Mm -hmm. sisterhood story still to tell. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Robin Benoit, author of The 80-Year-Old Sorority Girls. So, Robin, you've mentioned your publisher a few times. Who is your publisher, and what is what is your, you know, how did you find and get published? That's a great question. Um, my publisher is Brown Books, and I originally was published, like I said, when I wrote Jillian's story about vision therapy. And I wondered, how do you get published? How does this work? And I um, had a friend from my childhood who lived across the street from me uh, who had written a book about mountain climbing. He um, regretfully had been in a water skiing accident uh, in his 20s, and he ended up being an amputee, and yet he went on to climb a mountain as an amputee and he wrote a book about it many years ago and I thought I wonder if he would have any advice because let me tell you if there's something we learn as sorority women it's to use our resources and to use a network and I so I thought well I don't even know if he'd really remember me and I hemmed and hawed about it for a couple of weeks and finally I just thought well I don't have anything to lose I'll just try to reach out to him And so we were Facebook friends where I was able to find him on Facebook and I sent him a message and told him I had written a book and wanted his advice. And he very graciously agreed to talk with me. And he said, well, what you don't do is send a bunch of manuscripts to New York city. That's just never going to (laughs) work. And he said, let me, uh, let me make a call to my publisher, Millie Brown, of Brown Books Publishing Group and see if she will talk to you. And he circled back a few days later and he said, she'll talk to you Friday at 4.30. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? You know, (laughs) am I really ready to talk to a publisher Friday at 4.30? And I called and she was the nicest person. I mean, she said, you know, tell me about your story, why you've written it, what's your motivation? How many people do you think would be interested in that? You know, who, you know, she asked me some really key questions. And I'll never forget, she said, okay, listen, I'm going to read it. 
but she said, don't send it to Brown Books. Send it to my personal email at home so that I'll remember that I really need to take a look at it and it doesn't just get lost in the shuffle. And she said, if you haven't heard from me in about a month or six weeks, just give me a call. And three and a half weeks later, she called me and said, I'd like to offer you a publishing contract. And I was so blown away. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, they are just the greatest people. I would have never thought of going anywhere with this book before talking to Brown Books because um, I really love their structure. They're a, a regular publishing firm that allows you to to join into a structure that allows you to keep your intellectual property as your own. And that is super important to me. And it was especially important to me with Jillian's story because my daughter was 10 years old Mm. when I wrote that book. And I wanted to maintain ownership of that book and of that intellectual property. So, um, yeah, I just, I asked a friend and a friend referred me and, Luck, I got lucky. So that was, so all three of your books have been with Brown Books? Yes. Yeah. And did your, did you work with the same editor for all of them? Uh, no, I did not. I worked with a different editor for each one and a different team for each one. And um, I really think that they put me with more of a developmental editor this last time because this was my first fiction Mm. and there was something that they taught me a lot about which is internal dialogue and after they took their first glance at it they said we want you to go back through and we want you to read it from the point of view of what are your characters thinking and make sure that the readers understand their internal struggles their thoughts you know what's what's making them feel scared, what's making them feel um, happy, what's making them feel alarmed or anything. And so I went back through it with this fine tooth comb and realized I had missed a lot there. Mm -hmm. And I think they did a great job of coaching me on Mm -hmm. that and, and other things as well, because I think the book needed it really, because like you said, it's a complex read. Right. Now, do they produce an audible book as well? They have not done that yet. Actually, to go into an audible book is quite expensive. Mm. And so they have not done that yet. And, um, you know, being a first time novelist, an unknown author, so to speak, um, it's hard to even get in bookstores anymore. And So we've started with a hardback book that you can order through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold, but you can't walk into Barnes & Noble and find it yet. Okay. Um, I need to get a few sales under my belt and be more of a proven person for that to happen. So tell all your friends (laughs) (laughs) um, to help me out. I would really love to have it in a bookstore because I think that's where women shop. Right. A lot of women right. still go to buy books. Now, what about mm-hmm. um, Kindle version? Is there a Kindle version? There is. It just came out about a, two weeks ago. The book launched on May 3rd, and then I think the Kindle came out on June 3rd oh. or thereabout. Um, it has been it has been an interesting navigation right now. I know everyone has talked about supply chain issues. Um, we had a delay 
with paper availability. We had a delay with shipping because gasoline is so much more expensive now than when the truck contracts were written. Oh, yeah. And so we had truckers not wanting to take the books from the bindery to the warehouse. And it has just been something else, I will tell you. But we're just doing our best to make sure that the book is available online to anyone who'd like to buy it, whether it's a hardback book or an ebook. Well, congratulations on publishing your first novel, and it sounds like the next one is well underway. It's in my head. It's in your head. Okay. <laughs> I don't have anything on paper yet, but it's in my head. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's where it all begins. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Well, Robin, thank you so much for being with us today. We're almost out of time. And Caroline, do you have a closing quote for us? Yes, I do. Uh, friends are the family we choose. And this book illustrates how wonderful those relationships can be. Uh, true friends know what our short, shortcomings are, and they love us in spite of them. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty evident in this book. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, th- thank you. Thank you, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Monica, and thank you, Caroline. I really enjoyed being with you. <laughs> and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everybody.